welcome to fourth times the charm today we are going to do what i believe will probably be our very last look at pre fourth times the charm episodes next week we have what is undoubtedly our biggest podcast ever where we interview hal masonberg who is the co-writer and director of The Plague, which we talked about for our five stars under 50. The story goes so much deeper and is way more in-depth than you could ever imagine. But we talked to Hal right before the new year. He's an awesome guy, and we're really happy that we're going to be able to share his story. Before that, though, I want to say our very last look at pre-fourth times the charm. We have a look at an old interview we did with Kevin Brando, who was the child star in Saturday the 14th, an excellent B-movie from back in the day. Just real, like, campy horror film, and it's one that I grew up and I loved watching. He has a very extensive background, as you're about to find out. He auditioned for Figment, the character in Journey into Imagination in the Disney Epcot ride in Florida. He ended up being the voice of Pinocchio in the Disneyland ride that came out in the 1980s. And he was just an awesome guy to talk to and to interview with. And so ahead of our biggest episode of fourth times the charm ever which will be this exact time next week please enjoy this interview where we both take a look at saturday the 14th his eponymous film that he starred in and we also take a look at the man behind the character that you see in saturday the 14th kevin brando here it is back from the archives of fourth times the charm enjoy and i will see all of you next week for our biggest episode ever interviewing hal masonberg of the writer and director's cut of the plague Sunday, more erotic than a fish man looking for love, it's time for Benimat's Festival of Findings, a celebration of the odd, obscure, underappreciated, and best forgotten video games, movies, and media of yore. I am Count Chocula Benjamin, joined by my fellow Boo Berry Matt. What's going on, Matt? Ooh, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, Ben. How are you? What's been, uh, how's LA treating you? LA life is. As strong as it always is. Take take that for what you will. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who uh, didn't do their undergrad at DePaul, so I had to explain everything around campus to him, and uh, it pretty much devolved into just me telling him where all the good bars were and how fun it is to go to IHOP at three in the morning. So you were doing your job. Damn right. Hashtag bring a light. Today we are going to be talking about a movie that I grew up watching every family has a movie that they grew up with and they just 
watched repeatedly on a given occasion. Uh, for some people, it's a Christmas story. For other people, it's some Hanukkah movie. I don't know. But for our family, every Friday the 13th, we'd wait an extra day <laughs> for Saturday the 14th. The wow, 1980s, wow. yes, the 1980s parody horror movie. Uh, which follows in the footsteps of many different parody hor- uh, parody films, such as uh, Young Frankenstein, Doctor Pickle, and Mister Pride from the twenties, uh, or even 1963's The Raven, which was helmed by Roger Corman. Uh, this movie came right at the onset of the slasher movie genre uh, at the end of the seventies. Exactly. This movie is interesting in that it sort of feels like a fish out of water from when it came out. It was released mm-hmm. in 1981, uh, just a week after the August 7th, 1981 release of Student Bodies, which was another uh, parody horror film. Um, but the innocence of this one is very much different from how the era was. This Mm -hmm. was released around the same time as you see Michael Myers hacking people to death in Halloween. And you see Jason Voorhees donning the hockey mask in Friday the 13th. Yeah, so in 1981, we saw some real horror classics and, you know, some that were actually horror comedies. Like, for for an example of an American comedy, uh, we had an American werewolf in London. But we also had Evil Dead, which is arguably a comedy. Um, We had Halloween 2. Friday the 13th part 2 um, The Howling I don't know if you've seen that one Ben we had The Fun House The Burning Hell Night uh, Scanners came out in 1981 and just a series of other movies where it, it was they're almost funny but I think that's because we're watching them now I, I mean you had The Omen 3 which came out which is about him becoming the president so horror was really taking a, a different direction because I think you saw in the 70s a lot of that exploitative horror that it was almost too real for people, I think. Like, if you look at Wes Craven's career, he just slowly gets more and more PC. That's very interesting. And as I was saying, Saturday the 14th is interesting in that you still have these movies like Evil Dead, mm-hmm. like Nightmare on Elm Street, which are all cropping up. And this movie is very much both a movie of a bygone era, in a way, in that it has so many callbacks to say, uh, you know, they have the fish man, which is essentially the creature from the Black Lagoon. No, it it looks exactly like the creature from the Black Lagoon, by the way. Yeah, they have the 1930s era of monsters in an era of horror that's dominated by the likes of Freddy Krueger. Yet at the same time, this movie, to me... I think that it's very much a forefather of YouTube shorts. Starring real-life couple Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice, and funded by Roger Corman's wife Julie, Saturday the 14th follows the adventure of a naive family as they are gifted a house that contains a book which can destroy the world. Along the way, they are coerced by one Van Helsing, played by Severn Darden, owner of the world's most bizarre accent i i think i think he put on a performance like unto that of uh hans gruber uh played by alan rickman in one die hard 
as well as the vampiric duo of Valdemar, Jeffrey Tambor, and Yolanda, Nancy Leanders, all the while being comedically assaulted by fish people, aliens, rude windows, and a story that loosely makes sense. They also get attacked by a purple glove. Demonic purple glove. Damn right. This is actually Jeffrey Tambor's second theatrical release they was in. He was in some TV shows before this, but this was his second film and I think his first role of real stature. What's up? What's for, for those who don't movie. know Jeffrey Tambor's name off the top of their head, how would you what 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 is his like his big like what what was his claims to fame? I mean Jeffrey Tambor's one of those actors who's been in a little bit of everything. Off the top of my head, if I had to say one thing, he's been in TV more than movies, but like Arrested Development is one of the shows he's probably best known for. Yeah, he, he's one of the Arrested Development people. They yep. are uh, working against Van Helsing as they're trying to get the Book of Evil from one small child who bum, bum, effectively bum. drives the entire plot of this movie. And yeah. that child is one Kevin Brando, who oh, yeah. we were lucky enough to sit down and have a nice long discussion with about both his career and the movie itself. Yeah, I wasn't invited. One of the things I think is interesting about the interview, which you'll be listening to after the trailer break, is mm. how they were working with very small budget, how yeah, like the story almost. is very basic, very bare bones in a way. But there's still a lot of heart there, yeah. still a lot of good stuff. And it reminds me of a lot of the YouTube channels that exist today where you have mm-hmm. simple storylines that, you know, it'd be hard to stretch it out past an hour, which even this movie only runs a very, very thin hour, hour and 15? 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this, Ben, on that point uh, in relation to the YouTube thing. Um, I was trying to think of other movies that, you know, based on what we heard in the interview, uh, you will hear, and just kind of the way this movie feels. You know what movie it shockingly reminds me of? I, I think more so from, like, a production and editing side. Wayne's World. I can see that. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's almost like a sketch comedy piece that's drawn out into a whole movie. And it's yeah. very tight. There's no fat, There's no fat in this movie. It's all content. Like, when they filmed Wayne's World, it was only, like, a 45-minute movie. And then they had to, like, refilm a bunch of scenes to fill in time. And this movie, and as you'll hear, it was... It's all... It's like, these are a lot of single-take days. And he's a very, like, very very quick filming schedule. They didn't really have a lot of time here, especially with a young child actor as talented as Kevin Brando. And, and when I'm talking about this comparison to YouTube, I mean more than anything that this is a type of movie that wouldn't be made anymore today, given the attention span of today's public and how media has just evolved. This more innocent and thought-out humor has been completely lost in the feature format, losing space to the likes of a crude scary movie or haunted house. Features like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Saturday the 14th can now seemingly only find a home online. Saturday the 14th didn't create the skit genre, I'm not saying that, but it is an example of a format of comedy which can now realistically only exist online, which it does. Well, and we and we we've seen this kind of these kind of comedic satire types of pieces, you know, they we can link these back to 
you know early medieval times the jesters and caricatures of the time they were the ones who delivered all of the bad news because they would deliver it in jest you know and like their bits were like quick 15 minute you know little snippets you have like oh i'm the duke of essex i'm a bitch and that kind of satirical very quick quippy comedy um has evolved out of that and then you get as that evolution occurs and technology advances you get these long form um representations of it and you see it a lot more now today with like all of the snl movies but when this came out and when stuff like saturday night live came out they were very pure and you can look at like other parody movies like airplane which take that style and then you know actually develop it into a you know hour and 30 minute movie with different you know plot structures but you see you still get that comedic parody very over the top very the characters don't notice things and it's not aggravating because it's obvious where in like a regular horror movie when the like dumb blonde walks past the monster in this movie like the monster's like poking her in the head and it's hilarious yeah this movie what i appreciate about it that a lot of movies uh like scary movies since have completely missed or have completely thrown out the windows that okay. this the has first a scary movie was innocence good. there's a real sense of wholesomeness which even today is sort of missing a little bit um because the comedy changed now like in order to be a parody film it needs to be like dick jokes like dick jokes and like twittery instagrammy kind of pushing the limits comedy in order for people to be like oh that's so shocking and funny and you know obscure you gotta you gotta like make them feel uncomfortable it's very hard to make people uncomfortable nowadays you know when this movie came out you could have listened to kiss or you know like knights in satan's service you know like that like a, a a band that sings about like love and rock and roll and has a song called you know god made rock and roll was considered literal pure evil and now we have soundcloud rappers with face tattoos talking about popping xanax at four years old it's really hard to oh, shock gee, people yes, nowadays slay queen oh yes yeet Drag her. That was the that was the most appropriately yeah. used yeet I've ever heard in my entire life, and for the first time so you, I heard so someone say it didn't sound is. like a joke. So you know what yeet means? Because I I was just taught what yeet means. Oh, I don't. I, I like didn't think it meant anything. Thing. I just know how to use no, it appropriately. No, there there's a whole. Uh, so apparently yeet, yeet is once you finish drinking something and it's empty. You say yeet, and then you throw it. That seems stupid. What if it's glass? I, that's what I keep saying. That, but apparently wow. I'm the wrong one. I don't... You. I mean, I. you, you sound so, correct. Like, I, I, I believe Regardless. You, but holy regardless, shit. Regardless, uh, I was really happy to be able to talk to Kevin uh, and get some insight into what it was like to be a child actor in the 80s going into the 90s. He has a very extensive... Uh, career as a uh, as a youth performer so I'm really excited for all of you to be able to listen to his career and see what his experience was like on this very much underappreciated film and in the description below this episode I'll include a link to the movie Saturday the 14th so if anyone's interested in seeing what one of my favorite movies from my childhood uh, is like you can go down there and check a look. 
Yeah, and uh, just to get out there, I thought the movie was uh, pretty good. It's my first time seeing it was like a couple weeks ago in 2018. So I had a I had a great time with it. Um, and I think, uh, I think and I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it for all the people. I think this interview coming up, pretty good. Don't let me tell you about it. Just listen to it. I mean, or not, but you've already listened to this part of the podcast, which is if, the if bad you're X part. minutes in, you you've already done enough. Just listen to the really good part. And now, with no further delay, we are going to take you guys to a quick trailer break, and then right afterwards, I will begin my interview with Kevin Brando, star of Saturday the Fourteenth, and a whole host of things which honestly will probably surprise you this guy has done a lot right after the trailer break this is the festival of findings don't go anywhere oh yeah it gets bad on friday the 13th but it gets worse on saturday the 14th the book of evil 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 Richard Benjamin, Paula Prentice. We've inherited a house with a curse. Oh, come on, Mary. You know you don't believe in curses. Well, somebody did the dishes, and we're the only ones in this house. An innocent family driven absolutely batty. Just when you thought it was safe to look at the calendar again comes Saturday the 14th. The year's number one horror comedy spoof. God, look at all these owls. My name is John Hyatt, and I've got bats in my belfry. You know how many? We're charged by the bat. Hold it right there, man. Oh. Oh. No, no, darling, keep it away. No, thank you very much. I'd like to take a look at her neck. Well, if you don't trust me after 311 years of marriage... When I leave this house, there'll be nothing left here to be afraid of. <laughs> Every shroud has a silver lining. So if you see every other chiller this year, you'll need Saturday the 14th. Well, this must be a charming wife. Famine. War. Major pest control. Death! It's your chance to laugh at everything that ever scared you. Come on, Billy. Quit fooling around. Give me a kiss, Tom. Oh, let me just see who that is. I'll be back for that kiss. Be sure to see it before sunrise. Saturday the 14th. Listeners, this is the Festival of Findings. I am Benjamin Tucker, and today I am joined by a very special guest who's popped up in more places than you would expect. Debuting on Disney television at the age of five, today's guest has provided the voice for characters on the Peanuts television show, has been immortalized in theme park history on the Pinocchio's Daring Journey attraction in Disneyland, and was the central character in 1981's Saturday the 14th. An accomplished live-action actor, voice actor, and live entertainer, it's my pleasure to welcome Kevin Brando to the Festival of Findings. Kevin how are you doing? And thank you for taking the time to join us today. Oh well, thank you. I'm uh, it, I'm doing well, and it's nice to be uh, it's nice to be thought of and seen. So, uh, or I guess heard in this case. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm doing great, and thanks for asking me to be on the show. 
Yeah, absolutely. For for me, it's it's a little strange because I I Saturday the Fourteenth for me was always one of those movies where the family every family is one movie where it's like for whatever reason you just play it right uh-huh. every time something comes around right so people watch the Halloween movies whatever whenever it was Saturday the Fourteenth we just watch Saturday the Fourteenth for whatever reason. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, so I, I was doing we were going to do an episode on the show because. Saturday the 14th was a few weeks ago and I'm going to be honest for the longest time my like when I was growing up my parents told me you were Marlon Brando's son um, <laughs> <laughs> who was also named Kevin Brando so for the longest time I thought you'd been dead for like 20 years um, oh my gosh yeah no not 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 me but uh, no I, you I, were, you were very much alive I always tell people uh, that I am like a 30-second cousin thrice removed or something because I, I've never met a Brando I was not related to. So I'm sure if you follow the, the family tree far enough, maybe if I do my Ancestry.com sometime, I'll, I'll find out that, in fact, we are somewhere related. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we can always just lie. That works, too. Yeah. So. I, I, do, I do it frequently. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> So let's start out. So you're not directly related to Marlon Brando. Let, let's talk, though, about your actual family and your actual background. As I understand it, you had, your parents were involved in the music industry from, for a very long time. Well, you have done a lot of research. That introduction, I was like, wow, he's, he's stalked me well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so um, my, my father was... Uh, an entertainer uh, going back to the uh, the 1950s he had his own uh, television and, and radio programs back in uh, in Louisiana where he uh, is from and uh, he was kind of kind of a uh, mr. television uh, of that era uh, in in uh, Shreveport Louisiana in northern Louisiana where uh, where he lived and and so uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of entertainment background, and then, uh, you know, he he was kind of a a jack of all trades, a, a renaissance man, and did many many things. But entertainment was always in his blood, and and uh, years later, uh, he you know once once I came around, uh, of course he he got me involved. My my older brother uh, Tim um, is. Uh, also, he's uh, first of all. Uh, I'm the product of my dad's second marriage, so my my all my brothers and sisters are, are half, but I consider them all whole as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I don't know if you if you your research has come up with the fact that my older brother Tim uh, Tim Brando is a uh, a pretty well known famous sports announcer and, and has worked for years for CBS uh, Sports as well as uh, uh, right now he's working for Fox Sports and uh, has been doing. Uh, you know, big time sports broadcasting ever since he was about 14. So uh, there's a lot of entertainment background that comes from my dad. Wow, that's that's that is a lot of entertainment in one family. Yeah, well, uh, he was a, a really amazing guy and, and a big personality, and uh, uh, he was one of those guys that when you met him, everybody loved him. Everybody just, you know, he be, he was everybody's best friend right away, and 
And so he, he worked in entertainment both, like I said, doing television shows. He, he, had, he was a musician. He played trombone, which is where I started playing trombone as well. Uh, he was a singer. And uh, eventually later in life, he was a, uh, a newspaper reporter. And just he did a lot of different things. But a lot of everything was, was all about some form of entertainment. Now, you were since birth. You were exposed to entertainment. Was it always a goal for you to enter entertainment, or was it something you just sort of fell into? How how that play out for you? Well, uh, so yeah, it was just always something that was there. You know, I started playing uh, trombone when I was like two years old, and uh, my my older brother Danny. Uh, also started playing trombone as a result of my dad. And so the story goes, I don't remember this because I was too young, but when I was about 16 months old, I walked over to the trombone that he had sitting on the, the edge of the bed and I blew a note on it. And they were like, oh, wow, he can blow a note on it. So they started letting me mess around with it. And I started playing trombone, you know, and at two years old, I was on the cover of the, the Dallas Times Herald uh, newspaper playing my trombone and, and singing because uh, they would have me entertain. My dad uh, and my mom were uh, were uh, managing a, a big hotel in, in Dallas at the time, and so I would entertain the guests there doing, you know, playing trombone and singing and stuff. So the news came out and, and, uh, and did a story on me. And then, you know, eventually from there, uh, the the hotel that my parents were running had a, a lounge and my dad would always entertain in there as well and eventually they started working me more and more into the show and more and more into the show and and uh, eventually we took that show on the road with a band called Kevin Incorporated and we toured supper clubs all around the uh, country and uh, they would do you know 45 minutes and then they'd bring out the the five-year-old trombonist singer and i would do you know 45 minutes and then uh, i'd go back into the motor home that we were staying in and my mom would try to keep me awake for the next set (laughs) so i i was always in my blood it was never something that i necessarily was like oh i i I have this passion to do it but it wasn't that i didn't have a passion it's just all that i knew you know and so uh Growing up, that was that was it, and then how I how I ended up getting into acting from there was you know we ended up in in Los Angeles and in, in California or just prior to Los Angeles, a little farther north, and uh, the the Alcoholic Beverage Commission there has different laws than they did at the time in Louisiana or these other states. Uh, in Louisiana, I could perform in a lounge if I was underage. I just couldn't drink, but. Uh, at the time, California had laws like they do now, where no no one underage is allowed in the in on the premises. So uh, that you know effectively put an end to my stage uh, lounge entertaining career. Uh, and then shortly after that, um, my I was performing at a, a showcase, doing something with my dad, and uh, some some uh, commercial and and film agents saw me. And, uh, you know, talked to them and said, hey, can, you know, we'd like to sign him up. And so I started doing acting. And, and if you're a kid at that age uh, who can read well, I was always, uh, I started reading when I was like three. So I could read and, well. And, and I, what you know, age I, are you at this time? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, I, I hate to admit it, but uh, I'm 48 now. So I was born in 1970. Uh, so, yeah, 48. And uh, so this, this is all very, very ancient history. <laughs> Right, but but at the at the time that you start running into these agents, how old how old are you? I'm not trying to expose your real uh, age now. We can pretend no, that part. 
It's fine. It's fine. Um, I always tell people I'm 29 forever, so it's okay. Uh, no, I, I was at that point uh, about uh, late fives, early sixes, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, then I, I started doing acting when I was six. And uh, and immediately started doing commercials and you know different TV things and and uh, did pretty well at it and it was fun. I had a great time doing it. Now, my first question, going back to your twos, is how can a two-year-old manage? Because I I spent several years in band, and I know people who were six foot tall who could barely blow a note with the trombone. <laughs> How is how is a twelve year old able to create a melody like a consistent melody from a trombone? I'm very curious. Well, at at two years old, uh, and if you if you look up uh, or find I find the, the the photo of me on the cover of the the newspaper, uh, I would hold the bell of the of the trombone up with my foot, uh, and then I would I could. I could move my uh, there. There are seven positions on a trombone, and I could get out to about ooh, third position or so, and that was my full extension. And so I was able to blow recognizable tunes uh, on it. I mean, I was I was certainly no virtuoso at two, but uh, sure. I was playing things that you could you could kind of recognize <laughs> at that age as much as I could, given you know my limited range at that point. Uh, but yeah, and I don't know how I blew the note. I can't imagine. You know, I see a two-year-old now, and you know, trombone mouthpiece isn't super small like a trumpet. I I don't know how I did it. I just guess I did. <laughs> I, I I was I used to play the alto sax, and I was at a friend's okay. house about a week or so ago, and they go, "Oh, you used to play the sax." I'm like, "Yeah, it's been years." That he's like, "Oh, try playing this." So he brings out his old saxophone, and even after being out of it for a few years, only a few years, it's sort of hard to get back into the amateur of it. And I'm oh, yeah. six foot whatever at this point, you know, so that's pretty impressive. Well, um, I, I haven't, I haven't, I stopped playing trombone when I was about, you know, when I got out of high school, probably about 18. And uh, I pick it up about every, you know, five or 10 years. And I can, I can last for about five or 10 minutes. And then I'm like, yep, I got nothing left. <laughs> and I put it back away for another five or 10 years. We'll, we'll just chalk it up to the mysteries of childhood. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so you start doing commercials and at at this point you're about 5, you're 6. We're actually getting to the point where you can remember bits of your life. Uh sure, which is yeah. good. Um <laughs> good for the how, podcast anyway. <laughs> for for yeah. From what you can remember, you said it was a good time. Uh, how did it work? Was it sort of sporadic, or were you very much from here to here to here to here? Uh, what was commercial life like in the 70s for a six-year-old? Yeah. Well, for me, um, I was going on uh, anywhere from two to four commercial auditions every day just around maybe you know i should say every day maybe maybe four or five days a week we didn't go on auditions uh, on the weekends you know they're they're they they had laws against that i guess but um pretty much every day during the week uh up until about up until uh from about three o'clock until about six o'clock let's say you would try to get uh they would try to schedule auditions for you in those times you know after school would let out um and uh, so I would go on auditions, uh, you know, it, 
least, you know, usually most days I would go on, on one or two auditions for something. And, and uh, I, I sort of felt like I had two different things that I did. You know, looking back on it as, as a kid, you don't see things the way you do as an adult. You don't look at things and say, oh, you know, I really want to get this job because it's going to be a great, you know, vehicle for me. When you're, when you're that age, you just, you know, it, you just do stuff. And so right. I, I, I had this routine of, of you know, I, this thing called going on auditions that I did. And I would see other friends there and other kids that, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you look the Kids that look kind of similar or fit a similar type are always going to be on the same audition. So you see a lot of the same kids. And then I had this other thing that I did called uh, going to film. And that was a completely different animal for me. You know, it's like, okay, I do this one. I didn't really always attach the fact that, oh, if I do a good job on this audition, I'm going to get this job and then I'm going to go film this other thing. It was just sort of like, I do this thing called auditioning and then I do this thing called filming sometimes and that's really fun and they treat you great. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of a surreal experience when you're that, that young, but I didn't know any different. You know? Do you have, this is a two part question. Do you have any commercials which you not necessarily hang your hat on, but you're like, Oh yeah, this was something really cool that I did. And do you remember any auditions you had for something that turned out to be really well known that you may have not gotten the part for? Yeah. Um, well, from a commercial perspective, uh, I did a lot of uh, auditions for. I mean, I remember going on Underoos commercial auditions, and uh, back in the day, if anyone that's the proper age remembers Underoos, I uh, I was not excited about getting that job, which I didn't get, so that was good. Um, <laughs> But uh, I did a lot of auditions and actually booked uh, some some commercials for a lot of the, the Star Wars toys that were out at the time. Uh, I remember doing uh, commercials a lot. I, I would do hand modeling a lot as well. So I did hand commercials modeling. sometimes you would right. see my face. Yeah, so you would sometimes I was the kid when they when they zoomed in on the video game right. that you saw playing. I was the hands playing the video game sometimes. And other times I was the face. It just depended on, you know what they needed for the commercial and what they booked. But I remember a, a lot of the, the Star Wars toys were, were pretty special at the time, and they were all kind of new. And I remember doing a, a commercial for, um, for the uh, – the, they had the 15-inch, the, the extra-large action figures that they came out with. Yes. And, um, and so I did, I did uh, the – there was one with a Stormtrooper and one with a Han Solo. And I remember um, also uh, – uh, shooting at the same time a, um, uh, a commercial for uh, the X-Wing and the, the, the TIE fighter that, that uh, Darth Vader flew. And the, the, at the end of the commercial, they, they let us keep, they said, hey, if you'd like, you can, you can keep one of these. So, of course, being, uh, you know, loving the good guy, I took the X-Wing fighter, which had been in production. Little did I know that the, the Darth Vader TIE fighter that they offered me was like a prototype and would have been worth, you know, tons of money down the road, but I never realized that until later. I was just too hung up on, you know, I want to be the good guy, so I took the X-Wing. <laughs> well, hey, if it's any solace, given how everyone treated their Star Wars figures as a kid, it probably would not have met a very good fate either way. Yeah, I don't, I couldn't tell you where any of my Star Wars toys uh, ended up, so yeah, you even even those I wasn't able to hang on to, so I have no idea. It probably is in the, a landfill somewhere. Um, and then to the second an the sec the answer to the second part of your question, um, 
I, uh, I things I didn't get. Um, I auditioned for. I, are you familiar with the, the the movie The Shining, Stanley Kubrick movie The Shining? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so I auditioned for that, and I I got to meet Stanley Kubrick. Uh, did not get that. Um, there is a uh, a movie called The Champ, and it was the uh, it was with John Voight and yeah. Ricky Schroeder. Yep. And uh, I was I was in the final. Uh, there were they they did a final screen test with four of us, and then it came down to me and Ricky Schroeder. So I was almost Ricky Schroeder. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, it just didn't didn't quite work out and you know he had a great career and and so i would often you know as, as i was getting older i would often follow his career a little bit because i was thinking you know gosh i came really close to that maybe i would be on silver spoons or or whatever at that point you know but you know life is life is what it is that's right so you go on a number of these auditions and as far as i can tell your first major film was Saturday the 14th, released in 1981. Is that correct? Um, yeah. Let's see. I had done... Uh, I did... Um, certainly that was the, the biggest role that I had played up in that, until that point. I did um, a movie uh, with Chuck Norris called The Octagon. I think that was in 1980. I think that was before. Um, and I played Chuck Norris in the flashback scenes that he had as he would flashback to a, a kid. Um, so that was that was a you know a, a fairly big movie that I had done at that time, but uh, certainly Saturday the Fourteenth was the you know my first even though I wasn't uh, I wasn't I didn't get lead billing but I probably have more screen time on that that movie than anyone yeah, and, and, else and in the that, movie. In that movie, you're I don't think you're listed with first or second or whatever billing, but you're very clearly the main character in it. Yeah, yeah, and you know there were some bigger names in that movie that certainly got bigger billing than I did, but you know that that's fine. Um, you know, uh, Richard Benjamin was a, a big actor at that time and had yep. and eventually became a, a very well-known director. And Paula Prentice, his wife, was in it as well. She had been a lot of stuff. And then probably the most famous person now that was in that film is is Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, it's a very interesting cast at very interesting times in their career and we'll we'll transition uh into the movie itself now uh richard benjamin i was reading this was actually the last feature he did before transitioning into a directorial role and he took about a decade-long sabbatical from acting right after this do you did you interact with him on set a lot did you get to talk to him yeah, um, and he, everyone on that set was were really, really lovely people, and he was really lovely as well. I remember, uh, and again, you know, this is all from a ten year old's perspective, but I do remember the the fact that the the director of that film it was his first film, and uh, I'm not sure if Richard Benjamin had directed much before that, but certainly he had a lot of experience, and I remember that he was, um, you know, he would offer some suggestions uh as to maybe another way to do things or whatever and i remember that uh i remember really my parents probably talking more about that than than i noticed like oh yeah that was a good idea or that wasn't a good idea but uh certainly his his uh interest in in directing was uh apparent at that time but yeah he was he was really lovely both he and paula were were really sweet people uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, this was Jeffrey Tambor's uh, second feature film, 
after uh, some but not too much experience in television. Did you get to interact with him? I, I mean, I'm assuming oh, some yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah, no, he was he was great too, and yeah, at that time he wasn't really well known. Uh, no, no one ex- outside of Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice on that film were, were really well known. There was there were a few cameos uh, made by some actresses and actors that had been famous, you know, in the in the 40s and things. Um, and later in the film, they play you know aunts and uncles come to the right. to the party at the end, but. Um, but yeah, uh, Jeffrey was was lovely as well, and and uh, you know I've followed his career uh, closely also because he's done so many great things, you know Arrested Development, and now he's doing that Transparent show, and uh, he's you know he's really blown up and and done amazing things. But he was he was a really great guy. Uh, Kari Michelson, who played my sister um, in the movie, she. Uh, you may, I'm sure you, your research has been great, so I'm sure you've come across this. She, uh, shortly after that, um, did a show called Give Me a Break with Mel yep. Carter. And, yeah, and she uh, was on that so for over got, 100 episodes. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a, a pretty you know, well-known show. And during the filming of that, of, of our movie, she was in talks with them. They, they had said that they were you know going to cast her and they were still in development and the younger sister role uh there were on that show there were three sisters uh and the youngest sister role um who as i recall on the show was kind of a tomboy uh at that time when they were filming this movie there was some talk about it being maybe a, a boy instead of a girl and so she you know mentioned me to the producers of the show um and i don't honestly recall whether or not uh, I ever like had an interview with them about it or not but ultimately they decided to make it a uh, a girl character anyway so it didn't really matter but yeah um, she went on to do a lot of stuff uh, later too and and we had a really nice connection she was you know obviously still a lot older than me but I think she was 17 or 18 at that time so we probably bonded as uh, more than than I did with just about anybody else right do you still keep in touch with anyone from the movie you know, I don't, and I, you know, I would love to. I wish I, I could. I would love to see all of them. If, they, if, if there was ever a reunion, <laughs> I would go. It would be, be my pleasure. Uh, I have a lot of great memories from that movie, and and uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of. I would love to go and see if that house is still there. It's been years since I, that that house was located in, uh, in downtown L.A., right near uh, the USC. Uh, university campus and uh, it was not a good neighborhood it was a very it was sort of like right on the edge of two different gang territories and so I, the owner I, I of the think house, it's still uh, on the edge of two or maybe three gang territories now so. maybe <laughs> it was it was a it was a sketchy neighborhood but the, all the houses in that neighborhood are are like that one are beautiful huge old mansions and uh, I don't know it's like I said it's been years since I've been back there but I would hope that one day maybe they would be, you know, renovated to, to their early glory because it was really a beautiful old house. And the, the owner of the, the property was um, was there on set all the time. And he was in um, a, a big proponent of trying to uh, save a lot of the old houses in that neighborhood. He was a really interesting character. He uh, had worked. The, the owner of the home where they, where they shot it, he used to work uh, 
in with NASA. He had worked, I believe, on the Apollo program and was super brainy and had all these computers. And he would always go and let me play on his computer when you know we were in between scenes. And he was really a lovely guy, kind of a, a an eccentric fellow, but yeah, really cool. Sounds a little eccentric. Yeah, you, you know, there are all these. Anytime you do a, a film, you meet all these people that have all of these backgrounds that you would never necessarily think would mesh and then you put them all in, in one pot and it's uh it's always an interesting time we were we were filming for i think it was about a month so we got a lot of time to spend with a lot of people and how how was the shooting schedule when you got the scripts when you first got the role was it largely the same and it was just boom 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 just get through everything as much as possible or were there a lot of changes how did production work from your perspective well when you're a kid on those sets um you know labor laws are different so you have you have a work permit and you're only allowed to work a certain amount of hours per day i'm trying to remember at that age i think it was maybe four hours per day um and then the rest of the time you have to be doing school and you have to have uh three hours minimum of of schooling per day and so there's a studio teacher on set who is also um, doubles as the welfare worker so he's there as your advocate on your behalf to make sure that they don't overwork you and that you get enough hours so there are there were days when you know we would be fighting light or whatever and they're like oh we just need to get this one more shot and you know the welfare worker would have to say I'm sorry we have to step in and uh, you know say he can't shoot anymore today because that's the law. And so there's a really interesting uh, anecdote that you may or may not have noticed if you watch the film. The end credits, where uh, I, I you know spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen the movie. Uh, at the end credits, the 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 house turns into this beautiful you know white picket fence perfect you know house, and they're fading. You, the camera kind of pulls back from the house uh, and they needed to get that one more scene and it was uh, on a day that they couldn't have me do it and I think it was the end of end of filming because I don't know why they wouldn't have just done it on another day but usually they don't film things chronologically and they didn't in this case but apparently this was the last scene that we shot so they had to find some other kid that could you know that they could use so if you look at that scene that's not me standing there with the family holding the dog and they have this big fluffy dog and he's holding it up in front of his face so that you can see so you can't tell that it's not me <laughs> so it's an imposter all this time yeah. it's been it's an imposter just that one just that one scene everything else is me but if you look at that scene when you go back and look at it again if you look really closely you might be able to tell it's a kid with a big blonde wig yeah that is absolutely incredible. It now it seems like filming overall then was pretty brisk. Did you were there any times on set where even with your the the limited time you had directly working where there seemed to be a lot of holdups? I I went to school for film and there'd be some mm. days where you're just working and it seems like nothing is going right whatsoever. Oh, sure. Well, again, as a kid, you're kind of shielded from some of that because of the, the labor laws. But there were certain times when, you know, I would be there on set. You know, we would be staying late and there were night scenes that we, we needed to shoot. Uh, so sometimes uh, you would work at night and you would bank your, your school hours uh, ahead of time so that you could have enough hours in the evening to do that. The, the thing about that particular movie, and if you've been to film school, then you understand it was an extremely low budget film. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, anyone that sees the movie, uh, I think you can tell still. It's <laughs> pretty low. <budget>. Yes. <laughs> so it was uh, uh, the on those kind of films. There's a lot of you know guerrilla filmmaking kind of going on, and and you're trying to to work quickly. And like I said, it was a first time director, so there were a lot of of uh, uh, filming things that probably didn't go as smoothly as I would imagine they were intended to. But again, I wasn't really, you know, privy to a lot of that because they were shielding me in a lot of ways from, from long extra hours. But I know there were, there were times when they, you know, the crew was tired because they had, they pulled a late one, you know, were there, um, were there any scenes that you can remember that ended up not making it to the final film? Uh, you know, this far away, there weren't really a lot of scenes that I can think of that didn't, and and I think that that's probably, I, I think that's probably because of the budget. They probably couldn't afford to to do a lot of cutting. I think they yeah. I mean, as it shot, is, the film's only hour and fifteen minutes or so. Yeah, and uh, so I don't really recall anything doing anything specifically that we didn't get in, but I certainly have lots of memories when I watched the film, and and I have to say I haven't watched it in about probably about five years um but when i do watch the film i certainly have memories of oh yeah i remember when we shot this scene it was you know it was it was tough or like oh right around the corner from there like in the kitchen when we were uh you know where we filmed like the the scene where the 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 sandwich uh becomes the the uh you know he just keeps piling it on and piling it on just right around the corner from there there was this little out the back porch was where the prop room was and so i remember while we were filming that you could smell a lot of the you know the the paints and the the different glues and the different things they were using to make the props work they were right around the corner from there and so uh, i i you know how smells you can kind of remember uh really well years later yeah. that's one of the things i remember is the you know the smells of it and uh i remember the uh the scene at the toward the end when when I'm trying to get out of the house and you open the door and it's just like, you know, Armageddon is going on outside. Right. Uh, there was just this ginormous fan that was actually bigger than me. It was probably six feet round. And they just went and got every kind of uh, leaf and, you know, any kind of grass and crap that they could find uh, to, to blow right at me. And so that was not a pleasant experience. It was It was pretty true to life, you know. <laughs> I Lots assume that was like one of that. the ones where you were hoping for just one take. No, yeah, no, no exactly. I, I have school to do. I will tell you an, another anecdote. It's funny because I like I, when I was talking. Uh, you, you mentioned that you wanted to do this interview, and so I, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Honestly, I figured that you know this would jog my memory, and a lot of this conversation is jogging my memory now that you're asking these questions about what was you know what were behind the scenes things the the scene where i levitate yes in the in the that was uh i remember that vividly because the way that they did that is they had this big um sort of uh boom arm that was hidden behind the couch and there was this boom arm that came out and they shot it in a way that you know you couldn't see uh the the arm but what I was actually doing was standing on these two little planks that were, oh, I don't know, maybe eh, an inch and a half wide that were the length of my foot. And they actually uh, inserted those 
inside the shoes that I was wearing. So they would slide on the shoes, and then I would slide my feet into the shoes. And what I remember most vividly is that we shot that for, I feel like it was a couple of days. It was forever. It felt like forever because they would put me up on this thing, and I'd have to stay in those shoes. I couldn't get out, you know, and those little metal things were very uncomfortable. So, you know, you remember pain really well. So that one I remember, yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, get me out of this thing as fast as we can. But it, we did it forever. It seemed like it never ended, that scene. Yeah, I can imagine if you have small torture devices on your feet, it's going to feel like forever <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, I, I'm sure that the uh, the welfare worker studio teacher was uh, was pretty happy about that. But that, yeah, that they, had him, they, they, they had him hidden in the other room. They're like, hey, look at this yeah. over here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and, and just to circle back just a little bit, uh, the audition process for the film, do you remember anything from that very much? Or was it just like you said before, just one of those, oh, hey, let's let's do auditioning again? Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't recall the actual audition for that. And I, I remember auditions for, for a lot of things, but that's not one that I really remember the audition for I remember you know when I got the role and I remember when I when you know we were happy at my house that oh you got this part and you know getting the script for it and knowing that we were going to shoot but I don't remember the audition process so much I know um Julie Corman who was the producer of the film yep. uh it, you, you know those uh who are into into film might know that you know she was uh uh Roger Corman's wife and Roger Corman, of course, was a very legendary filmmaker, uh, made a lot of the famous B-movies in the 50s and, and 60s, and uh, he was known for his low-budget things. And so this was a, a, a Julie Corman production, um, but she was lovely as well, and she was really kind. Uh, after that, um, uh, she uh, wanted to make a, another film, and I don't remember if it was ever made because the, the film never got made with me and the reason was that they were doing filming in Canada and at the time at least Canada had a rule they needed uh, either an, an all Canadian crew or a certain amount of Canadians and so she wanted to use me for that film and then ultimately I ended up not being offered the role because she couldn't do it and in fact they didn't make the film they they stopped because it wasn't going to work and I don't know if they ever made the film again later with other actors or, or not but I, I do remember that she was always so nice and, and thought enough of me to want to hire me again, which I thought was great. That is really cool. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like a good experience. What If you can remember, what would you say was your best experience on the film or your most memorable? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple. And not all of them were, part, were parts of the filming. Um, I remember that... Uh, <laughs> I remember I, I had a crush on Kari Michelson. I was ten, so I didn't, you know, whatever a ten-year-old's crush is. It, it wasn't, it wasn't romantic as much as you just kind of, you know, feel drawn to somebody. And yeah, I remember, naturally. When, yeah, you know, and she was like seventeen or eighteen, so she was, she was sweet, and and so she. Uh, I remember when we were filming the the bathtub scene, uh, which we filmed in many different ways. But the, the the part where I'm dragging her in there, obviously she was clothed under the under the towel but um i remember we were shooting that and i remember one time she was like give me a kiss and so she kissed me right on the lips and it wasn't like a passionate kiss there was nothing inappropriate about it but of course for a 10 year old who who had a little crush on her that was 
a huge highlight for me, and I was, like, beaming for the rest of the day. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Uh, and then some other things uh, I would say, like, the studio teacher, obviously, I spent a lot of time with him. And he was a uh, – I still remember his name. His name was Dick Wickland. And uh, he rode a, a big, uh, like, Honda Goldwing motorcycle. And so he took me for some rides on that. And then I remember he was a uh, a pilot. He, he piloted his own plane. And so a lot of times uh, when we were in our school time, when I didn't have any more work that I needed to do, but I still had to kill some time, he would teach me about – he would pull out his, his – uh, his navigation maps and he would show me about how compasses work and and my birthday happened um right around the end of the film filming i don't remember if it was my actual birthday or if my actual birthday was like the week after but um i remember that for my birthday he gave me a compass and it wasn't just the, the his the way he gave me the compass he created this whole like series of coordinates and and things where i had to like do this whole like labyrinth around the, the property of the where we were shooting and eventually you know the the, the treasure at the end of the uh, the buried treasure was this compass that he gave me and I remember that vividly I thought that was super awesome you know so that, that was a that sounds like just thing, about but... the coolest teacher ever the the teacher who right. rides a motorcycle and gives you a birthday gift by having you use stuff you've learned that's great yeah, he was awesome, and you know, obviously, we spent a lot of time together. And I, I do remember, you, you know, working with him occasionally. On you know, if you work enough, you, you you'll run into the same studio teachers once in a while. And so, I don't remember specifically what it was, but I do remember that he was my teacher again once or twice over the years, and and he was always a really good guy. That's awesome. So let's transition then to after Saturday the fourteenth. Um, you did have uh, some other notable roles after that before you started moving into voice acting, correct? Yeah, um, I I did. I guess I guess I didn't really think of it as moving into voice acting. I'd always done, um, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff too. But I did more prominent. The more prominent stuff that I did after that was was mostly voice acting. I did a lot of it. Yeah, and the two most notable would be. Uh, of course, on Peanuts, you were Schroeder, correct? Mm-hmm, yeah. And then... I was Schroeder... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I was Schroeder uh, for a few years on... Um, on they, During that time, they had a, a, a Saturday morning show called the Charlie Brown and Snoopy Show. So I did a lot of episodes of the Charlie Brown and Snoopy Show. But I also did a few um, of their animated you know, specials. Uh, everyone always says, were you, you know, were you in it's the, you know, the great pumpkin or anything? I was like, no, the, those were done a lot earlier, but I was in a couple of, um, of, uh, other ones called, uh, there was it's flash beagle, which was a, a spinoff of flash dance. And there was also uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, which was yes. the stage musical on Broadway. They did an animated version of that. And on both of those, where there were music, I would speak the role of Schroeder, but um, Brad Keston, who was the, the voice of Charlie Brown at that time, uh, he didn't sing. And so whenever they needed Charlie Brown to sing, I did the singing part. So they would, I would be the singing voice of Charlie Brown and then the speaking voice of Schroeder. So, I mean, you're technically Charlie Brown. I, you could say that I'm also Charlie Brown, yeah. Yeah, I, you're I, also uh, Charlie I, Brown, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure, okay. But, uh, you know, I, I, I identified more as Schroeder because I did a lot more stuff as Schroeder. But, yeah, I, 
I was the voice of Charlie Brown in some way, shape, or form, yeah. And then, for me, I'm a huge theme park aficionado, especially when it comes to Disney parks. So, imagine my surprise when I see that you were the voice for Pinocchio in, in the uh, Pinocchio's Daring Adventure ride that still exists in uh, Disneyland in Anaheim. That is correct. I can still go there, and I don't have kids yet. Uh, I may still one day, but I always hope that they will leave that there until I can. If I do have kids, I'd love to take them to listen to me. But whenever I go with family or, or friends or you know girlfriends or whatever, um, and we go on that ride, like my sister will will be like, hey, you know, the person that's that's starting the ride, she'll be like, hey, look, look, guess who this is? Guess who this is? I'm like, they don't care. <laughs> they don't know, <laughs> you know. But yeah, like they probably don't even believe you. But yes, that was me when I was, you know, I was like 12 years old when I did the Pinocchio voice, yeah. How, how did that whole process go? Because the whole world of, especially animatronic voiceovers, is uh, sort of unexplored territory for a lot of people. Well, um, uh, the agent that I had at the time um, would also submit me for voice work, and uh, I was pretty good. I got a lot of voice work because I was I was good. I think the musical background helped. I was good at at doing something called looping, which uh, some people may not understand. That's when you you match your voice to someone else's lips. Or if, like if a, if there's a dropout in the sound and you need to du- overdub something, so right, I would like do a ADR lot of that. Yeah, yeah. And so I was I did a lot of that and then, you know, they would submit me for other things, other, you know, radio commercials and things like that whenever they needed a kid's voice. So I did a lot of that stuff. And so this was just another one of those uh auditions. First, um well, actually, I take that back. Uh at first, um I auditioned for the voice of a character at Epcot called Figment. If you're a, a theme park guy, you, you might know You auditioned the for Figment. Figment. I did and I did not get it. Um, and then, uh, later on, uh, if I'm not, I could, I could be wrong about this. I don't want to, you know, presume, but, uh, it's my understanding that they got in touch with my agent about the possibility of using me for Pinocchio, uh, when they did the, uh, the Pinocchio ride, uh, redo. So, um, or all of Fantasyland they were remodeling at the time. So, uh, so yeah, so when I, I don't think I actually auditioned as much as I probably went into like read for it and see if they like it. I don't know if they auditioned other people for it or not. They may have. I, I'm not sure. But, yeah, I did it, and uh, and I remember that very well. And, unfortunately, uh, I was 12 at that point. And then when I was, I think it was probably early 14, maybe, late late 13, early 14, um, they called me to do uh, – Disney was doing a uh, – a promotion with Jack in the Box where they were using Pinocchio for something. And so they called me in to do the, the ad for that. And at that point, my voice hadn't changed. And if you listen to my voice now, my, my voice never changed a whole lot. I still have a pretty high voice. But uh, it had changed enough that I couldn't quite get the tone that they were looking for. And so I didn't end up getting to do that radio ad. But I can still say that I'm the voice of Pinocchio forever. That's right. You, you have the proof for it. So that's yeah. interesting. They were auditioning for Figment at that time. Well, I guess that that time actually lines up just about right because the Pinocchio ride opened in about 1983 or so. Mm-hmm. Did they ever uh, 
did you ever like get anything out of that where they like oh hey you're you're pinocchio for life or something here's uh, i don't know i wish i don't get residuals for that you know i don't get I, I get I get residuals for a lot of things for like I get a lot of like you know dollar seventy two residuals for things like I did I did voice looping in the Karate Kid so I get a lot of like twelve cent checks for the Karate Kid even though my voice is just in the background on that you know but um, uh, but yeah I didn't get any residuals for that and I don't get free park admission or anything years later uh, I, I I've worked in the park uh, as a, you know, as a singer, I've worked as a, a, a Christmas caroler in the park. Uh, and so when I've done that, you know, it's uh, then I, I'm like, oh, cool, I get a pass, I can get in. But otherwise, I still got to pay what you pay. <laughs> There's no so, special treatment. <laughs> well, so that gives us a good branching off point then. You're in movies, you're in commercials, you're doing voiceover work, and then it's around the mid eighties where it seems like you transition out of that and you start moving in another direction. What happens around that time? Well, a couple of things, most notably, um, my father passed away when I was 14 in 1984. And so, uh, he was just the, I mean, all of my entertainment stuff comes from him. You know, I'm very much my mother's son in a lot of ways, but um, she, she does, she's not musically inclined and she's not a, a, an entertainer at all. Uh, and so all of that came from my dad and, and losing him, it was, it was real profound for me and it, 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 was, uh, it changed uh, a lot for me. I, I, stopped, uh, I stopped pushing. Uh, he was kind of my pusher, not that he was a stage dad or anything like that he was he wasn't but but he was you know a, a big motivating force in in my career and and also around that time I started going to school now we didn't really get to that but all of this time uh, up until I was you know 12 13 I didn't go to normal school like everybody else I um, I had uh, a private tutor that would come to my house um, for three hours uh, a day and then eventually when we were far away um, I don't know if this was technically legal at the time because there wasn't really homeschooling uh, wasn't a thing but uh, she would give me like a week's worth of assignments and then I would go do them and then and I would come back and meet with her in a week and we would go over that and so I didn't go to normal school at all until I was you know like late sixth grade and and then early seventh grade um, and so uh, around that time, I'd started getting more involved in school and, and typical normal social activities and stuff. And I got involved in band and, and choir at school, and and I, I was kind of rediscovering the musical side of me uh, that I'd always grown. Like the music was what started everything, and right. so I, I became more passionate about that. And and when I was about eighteen and I graduated, uh, I thought at that time I probably wanted to be a professional musician. Um, at the time, I was still playing trombone, and I thought, maybe I'll be a professional trombone player. And then I realized that there's not that much work for professional trombone <laughs> players. Um, but I was pretty good at that time, and so I thought I might be that. And then, uh, and then I also thought, well, for a minute, I thought, let me, let me dive back into acting, because that makes a lot of sense, and I was really successful doing that. But without my dad being there, uh, 
I and and also being older at that age, uh, eighteen, I was suddenly aware of oh well, you're vulnerable. You know, when you go on an audition and you don't get it, now I'm thinking oh. You know what's wrong? You know I didn't do a good job, or I'm, I'm more in my head about it. And I never was when I was a kid. It was just this thing I did, right? So right. I, I really, I really kind of allowed that. In addition to not having my dad, you know, there to support me, and my mom was a huge support. I don't mean to say that she wasn't. She was great, but I think that just for me, uh, I, I allowed myself to a lot of self-doubt to creep in that I never had then. So I kind of gave up on, on pursuing it much more after that. And I thought, well, what what is it that really I want to do? And what I always loved was music. And so I, at that time, I, I started playing. Uh, I kind of taught myself how to play keyboards and piano, and I, I started writing songs, writing music, and got really involved in that. And then pretty soon... People were, you know, asking me to play, you know, with them. It's, hey, come play with me in my band. I'm like, well, I don't really play. I just bought this keyboard. And I'm like, no, 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 you're good. Come play. And so I would go and play. And then pretty soon people are, you know, saying, hey, how much would you charge me to come play at this thing? And I was like, oh, I guess I'm a keyboard player now. Uh, you know, and I was always a singer. I'd been singing since I was, you know, two years old with my dad. My dad used to bounce me on his knee and we'd sing songs and, and we'd, you know, I was always entertaining. So singing, I could do without any effort at all. And so I would, I was doing a lot of singing gigs and I just kind of evolved into this musician and I just, okay, that's what I'm doing now. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, I have done a few acting things later, but most of them have been, you know, music related. I, I did a, right. a Chevy, Chevy commercial, uh, I think in 2009 where I was a Christmas caroler and, I did a, a an episode of Veronica Mars where I was doing some singing there, and so, but nothing that was you know nothing like I I did before, and and most right. of that came through music. So yeah, so that's that's how I became a musician. Looking back on it, do you wish that you stuck out in acting longer, or are you happy with deciding then you know I think music's a better place for me? Well, I I. I uh, Certainly, acting can be. Uh, I mean, I guess music can be lucrative, but acting was more lucrative. I was probably making as much or more when I was ten than I make now. Uh, <laughs> but um, which you know is is an interesting thing that most people don't don't have you know on their mind. But I I never. I never didn't like acting, and I sometimes I think, oh, you know, I wish I was still doing more of that. But I don't know if I have the the my my skin is thick enough at this point to to handle all the ups and downs. I have I have good friends that are still, you know, acting, and it's a grind, man. It really is. Not that music isn't, but uh, you know, living in L.A. and going on all those auditions and, and waiting tables and stuff. I, it's I, I don't know if I have it in me anymore. If I could, if I had an opportunity to to go back and, and, you know, I was offered a role or something like that and maybe that started something. I would never say no. I always loved right. it and they treat you they treat you amazingly and, and it's I love being on the set. So I would never say never, but it's not something that um that I, you know, I look back on wistfully and go, oh, I really should have done that, or, you know, I miss that. I'm, I'm very fulfilled musically, and uh, I, I, I get to entertain all the time, which is really what's in my blood. And I would love to do, you know, 
more entertaining all of my life in any way, it, be it on stage, be it, you know, at, on film, uh, being on podcasts, whatever, you know. I was working in talent management uh, last year for a good while, and it is brutal from all aspects of it. It's, you know, even even today, and I'm sure you're still, you said yourself, you're still connected to a bunch of people in it. It is hard, and it, it's yeah. hard for a lot of people who only see the outside of film without being inside it. People understand that it's difficult, but they don't know all the politics and all the mind games and the fact that you can be fantastic for a role and still not get the role. It's definitely very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, even as a kid, I, again, it didn't affect me, but I remember a lot of times you'd go in to, you know, what we would call a cattle call. They'd just have every kid in town there. And then you wouldn't even get to read for something because you didn't look right. You know, you didn't have the right look. And, you know, I get that, but I, I feel like, as an adult, when you know you have a, a living to make and you have uh, you know people counting on you, uh, that's that's a lot of pressure to go in and, and, and just be. Go ahead. Yeah, and and it's you know I I was working with one actor who was on a very famous TV show that I'm not going to name for the sake of a lot of stuff, um, <laughs> but yeah. you know he was on a really well known show. And nowadays he goes into all these rooms and just no one will hire him. They're just, he's done whatever and now no one mm-hmm. touches him. It's really, yeah. Ellie is such a fickle beast and it's, it's very, very hard to understand. So if you, if you have the right attitude for it, it's great. But if you have even, like you were saying, if you have even the slightest bit of a, thin skin you'll get eaten alive or you'll be turned into a Scientologist <laughs> yes that's the other that's the other danger that you have to watch out for yes, I, I, for sure. I only worked for two Scientologists so so you managed to escape uh, with your uh, skin intact then yeah yeah I got I got a I, I know <laughs> this is an, an interesting in, bunch yeah I, I know it's not an interview by myself but I, I had a uh, I was working for the management office and i got a call once from the church of scientology and they go hey yeah your uh your boss hasn't been over here in quite some time uh would you be able to send us his information i'm like oh i think you have the wrong number sir you know That's yeah creepy. there's, some, there's I, I i've heard plenty of stories that i'd uh I, i'm i'm happy not to be part of <laughs> so um so nowadays what are you doing so nowadays, um, I am uh, an entertainer, uh, and I live in Las Vegas, and I'm an entertainer uh, primarily on cruise ships. I do a lot of cruise ship work. Um, I play piano. I sing. Uh, I do stage stuff. Um, wherever, uh, wherever they need me, that's where I go. And I've traveled all around the world doing that, and I, I love it. Uh, it's really rewarding. I love to travel and I've met a lot of amazing people. Right now I'm talking to you from Hawaii. Um, I'm in uh, I'm in Maui. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm in Kauai. I don't even know where I am. I'm in Hawaii <laughs> today. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Saturday I'll be back in Honolulu. And so, uh, 
it's a it's a fun life, and I've seen I, I still get to entertain people, and uh, I meet tons of people from all around the world. You know, I've probably entertained in forty or fifty countries by now, and uh, I, I really do enjoy what I do, uh, and look forward to continuing that as long as I can. Uh, I do also perform in Las Vegas whenever I'm home. I'm just find that I'm home very rarely. Uh, I, I did find your demo reel online, and you have a hell of a demo reel. I got to say, you are you bring <laughs> the energy. Oh, thanks. Well, I try. You know, the, I, you probably saw like my piano bar reel, right? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a few of those up there. Uh, yeah, I I really enjoy uh, you know live performing. Always have since I was a little kid, and so. Whether it's you know in a in a lounge like that, or whether I'm performing you know uh, in a theater on a stage, I, uh, I I I love doing the entertaining that I do, and I love doing it. Cruise ship audiences are actually really great for the most part because nobody had a bad day. They didn't get off work. You know, they're all they're all happy to be there, and so uh, the audiences as a result tend to be very responsive and and good natured. You know, sometimes when you you're in land, somebody had a bad day at work, and they get there, and they're just kind of grumpy, and it's hard to entertain them. Right. Cruise ship audiences, for the most part, are, are, are pretty happy, so I like so, that. Um, so you like the constant travel. The yes, yeah, absolutely. So, but you, and, you, but you appreciate the, or you like, enjoy the, the constant travel then of the cruise ship that hasn't burned you out yet? Uh, well, I, so I've been doing it... Uh, for about 10 or 11 years now uh, pretty consistently. And so when I say, when you say it hasn't burned me out yet, uh, you get to the point at the end of every contract, like I'm on a four-month contract right now, so I'm, uh, as I get toward the end of that, you know, you, you, you yearn for a break, uh, you do. I, I, you miss a lot of birthdays and, and family functions. It, it's hard to stay connected with people. So there are pros and cons, but I will say for the most part, uh, I really enjoy the travel. If I if I could travel a little less uh, for a while soon, I think I might be like to split time a little bit more at home and and abroad. But uh, you know, in any entertainment job, you kind of go where the work is. And so right now, uh, they keep keep me really busy, and and I just try to make the best of that. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't it makes it harder to have uh, sustainable relationships, things like that. But um, it's uh, you know it's a, a trade-off sometimes I think for the life that I lead. I always tell people I'm living my retirement now and I'll I'll work hard when I'm older. You know. There you there you go. Well, I mean you know being on a being at sea for four months at a time is probably probably would make things like that a lot difficult. Yeah, it can it can. I mean you 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 tend to uh, to to get really good at long-distance relationships. There you go. Um, we're, I'm, I'm going to bring it around here. Going to start to work towards a close here. Cause I've already kept you for longer than I told you to, than I told you I would. That's all right. Um, for first we're, we're at the final three questions. Um, one, okay. what do you like to do in your free time? Well, uh, when I'm, uh, when I'm traveling, sometimes that's different than when I'm home, but, uh, I, in my free time, I do a lot of uh, music production. I, I, I still write music, and uh, so I, I do a lot of music production and recording uh, in my free time. Uh, I like basketball, so I like to watch sports. I like to play sports. I'm 
horrible at basketball. I suck, but I do enjoy it. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I love watching movies and entertainment. I'm hanging out with my friends, going out, uh, you know, all the typical normal life stuff. When I'm on the road, you know, some of those things change a little bit. When I'm here in Hawaii, I spend as much time at the beach as I can. Las Vegas, that's a little harder to do. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoy the outdoors and love to, love to spend time out in the sun. So, uh, as much as I can, I, uh, when I'm, uh, on a ship, then I'll, I'll get out to a beach somewhere. But when I'm home, uh, I enjoy my home time and, and try to do some, you know, normal life stuff. Fair enough. All right. Question two, what would yes, you sir. consider in your career, your biggest accomplishment? Oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, that's really a tough thing to say because uh, we I think, ask the hard-hitting questions. You can look at it. You do. I think you can look at that two ways. I think. I think one answer is to say, uh, you know, I, I certainly the, the biggest things on my resume are things like you know Saturday the Fourteenth or, or or Pinocchio or, or, or the Charlie Brown stuff, and uh, and all of that is great, and I'm very proud of it. But also, I think that. Um, being a, a working entertainer and a working musician uh, is a great accomplishment because it's and not a successful easy. one at that. Well, thank you. I, I like to think so. And uh, you know, some people would would say, "Oh, you know, you're a has been actor." And I'm like, "No, I, you know, that was that was something that I did, and now I'm doing something else." And I feel like, especially in in the 21st century now, we all have sort of different chapters of our life that we that we lead and different hats that we wear. And I think that that's increasingly common. People always have multiple plates spinning and you kind of have to have lots of things that you do well. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that both of those answers are valid. Well, I mean, it, it's a big accomplishment that not only have you managed to be successful in acting, then transition into music and be successful in that, which is a lot more than a lot of people can say. But also, you had a childhood in entertainment, in film, which, as we've been seeing more and more of lately, is a very difficult thing to do and still be able to subsist afterwards, and you've still been able to make that work. That's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. You know, there are, there are enough child actor horror stories out there that I suppose one answer could be, yeah, I escaped unscathed. You know, but the, the reality of it for me was that um, I, you know, I I was always treated very well. I had I had very good experiences. You know, not everybody did. I, I, I probably never quite got to the status where where I was, you know, being offered drugs all the time and things like that. So I, I, those things weren't ever, you know, I wasn't nightclubbing all the time. Uh, you know, I would go on interviews with people like, you know, Corey Feldman, and I would see them at interviews when I was a kid all the time, and then to see some of the things that happened to them later, you know, and the, the trials and tribulations of their life. Um, you know, That's I, right. I you saved all that for I the am. weekend, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we all, we all have our paths, and, and you know, maybe, maybe I missed out on, on some pretty incredible stories. I never hung out with Michael Jackson. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm happy where I am, and that's fine. All right. My last question. What is your biggest desire for the future? Ooh, these are very good questions. You, you do a good job at this. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Let's, 
Yeah. Um, my biggest desire for the future. Wow, that's a really deep question. Uh, I think career-wise, uh, to to keep being able to to be a successful entertainer and make people happy. I mean, entertainers as a rule, like that's why we're here. We like to make people happy. We like to be rewarded for that, but we like to make people happy, and I enjoy doing that. So I hope to always be able to do that, um, and and to be able to you know have a make a comfortable living doing that is a good thing. Um, and I and I think. Uh, just in general, to to be the best person I can be and, and, and be happy. I think that happiness is, is something that we all strive for and not enough of us get. So I, I always try to, to, you know, as Joseph Campbell would say, follow your bliss. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to uh, sit okay. down for this. I'm sure you have something you would like to plug. If you'd like to plug something, please plug away. Well, uh, you can find my, uh, my music on iTunes. You can find it on, uh, on you know, Spotify. You can go to cdbaby.com and order uh, my CD. I have a CD, uh, Harmony uh, is the title of it, and it's uh, all original music that I've written. And so uh, you can find me there. Uh, you can also find me at kevinbrando.com to see what crazy cruise ship I might be working on next or what adventure I'm on. So those are, those are my two big plugs. All right, there we go. This has been the Festival of Findings. I am Ben Tucker. He has been Kevin Brando. Thank you for listening.